Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 17, The Theban Sacred Band. In, uh, in 389 BCE, Agesilaus II focused his efforts back in Anatolia against the Persians. He remembered just how successful he was against the Persians the first time he invaded and wanted some of that glory back, especially after the Spartans were defeated both at land and at sea. Agesilaus II accompanied a fleet across the sea and landed in Ionia, where they gathered support from the cities still loyal to Sparta. And he was very successful in his campaigns against the Persians and even took several Greek city-states back from the Persian Empire. However, a message arrived in Agesilaus's camp that told him several oligarchs from Rhodes had traveled to Sparta. They spoke of an Athenian invasion planned for the island of Rhodes, as well as the fact that Athens had been secretly rebuilding its navy with Persian gold. Hearing the news, Agesilaus sent soldiers and supplies on ships to Rhodes to defend them from the Athenian invasion. And upon learning this, the Athenians decided, you know what, we're just going to postpone our attack. And instead, they traveled north into the Bosphorus, where they reached out and formed a new alliance with old friends. First, they went to Byzantium and forced a political reform, removing the oligarchs and instituting a democracy. Now this happened in many cities in the north. The next stop for the Athenian navy was the small island of Lesbos. Actually, it's not that small. Where they encountered the local Spartan general and quickly overthrew him in battle, killing him on the field. After acquiring several new allies and re-establishing a tax network, the Athenian Empire was officially reborn, and a stream of revenue was once again flowing into the Athenian Parthenon. The difference this time versus the previous Athenian Empire was that now it was completely voluntary, and the taxes were not crippling. It was the will of the people to be free from the Spartans that made this all happen again, realizing that their former imperial masters, the Athenians, were not that bad. Especially now that they had been humbled, they were the preferred choice of government. In 388 BCE, the Spartans heard about the Athenian involvement up north, so they sent out their own armies to the Bosphorus to undo all of their new democratic revolutions and return the cities to the oligarchs. When the Athenians heard the Spartans were on their way to Byzantium, they sent their own ships to intercept the Spartans. Fighting broke out in many of the Ionian cities, and we find more examples of Spartans being defeated by Peltas. In 387 BCE, the Persians made a peace agreement with Sparta. They saw the Athenians were becoming too strong and they needed to curb their growth. This peace with Sparta promised lots of gold for the Spartans so they could build up their navy to counter the growing threat of the Athenian Empire. Although this peace gave a lot of gold and strengthened the Spartan navy, it also guaranteed the Spartan withdrawal from Anatolia. Ah, money speaks again. In 386 BCE, a year after the Persians made peace with Sparta, the Persians brokered a peace deal between Athens and Sparta. This peace treaty guaranteed an end to all Greek activity in Anatolia, once again returning the Greek cities to Persian control. This was Persia's goal all along. Sparta was once again in hegemony over the Greek world, but Athens was spared the horrors they faced in 404 BCE when they were sacked by the Spartans. 
After the Corinthian Wars, Agesilaus was angry with Thebes. He knew they were the ones who instigated the entire conflict and ruined his chances of establishing an empire in Anatolia. Agesilaus was determined to get revenge on them. But for now, there seemed to be peace in Greece. So in 382 BCE, Sparta was going on a quick march into Boeotia. Now, before I go on, I just want you to notice that uh, four years has gone by. This peace has lasted four years. And uh, I possibly it's because the 12-year-old boys in 386 are now 16 years old, so they're old enough to go to war. I wonder if it was something to do with that. When the army was confronted by an oligarch from Thebes, he was pissed off at the Theban Democrats and wanted to see himself and all his mega-rich friends back in charge of the city. This was exactly the kind of government Sparta wanted to see in Thebes, so they listened to the Theban oligarch. With the help of this Theban trader, the Spartans got through the city walls and overthrew the democratic government, placing the oligarchs back in power. The new oligarch the, uh, regime of Thebes was very oppressive and angered most of the Boeotian cities. This government was so awful and so vengeful that it only lasted three years. In 379 BCE, the Thebans revolted against their awful new government and re-established the Theban democracy. They expelled every Spartan stationed in Thebes, angering Agesilaus in Sparta. Now this was great news for Thebes, but terrible news for Sparta. And they weren't just going to let this stand. By 378 BCE, Agesilaus led a Spartan army into Boeotia. And this was an autumn campaign, which didn't leave a lot of time for battle. But Agesilaus didn't need a lot of time. His plan was to crush the Theban army in hoplite warfare. Unfortunately for him, the Thebans never agreed to meet them in battlefield, and instead they hunkered down for the winter behind their city walls. Now this prolonged the conflict, forcing Sparta to return home, but not of course without raiding all of the countryside and killing all the peasants who they could find. Which really sucks to be a peasant in these days. Agesilaus made sure to leave several garrisons behind to keep the Thebans hiding behind their walls, and to make sure to keep wrecking havoc on the countryside. However, the Thebans were not going to let the Spartans get away with this, and several democratic leaders organized a military operation to get rid of the Spartan stragglers. By 377 BCE, the Theban army had hunted down and killed or expelled the Spartan garrisons that stayed behind. The democratic leaders of Thebes were very smart and very ambitious, and they wanted Thebes to be the dominant city in Greece. And they knew the only way for that to happen was to get rid of Sparta. So the leaders of Thebes plotted to rid the Greek world of Sparta once and for all. Now over the last couple of centuries, the Thebans had learned a lesson or two from the Spartans. In order for them to ever defeat them in hoplite warfare, they were going to need a full-time army, just like the Spartans. And they were going to have to adopt their ruthless training. They developed an army out of thousands of farmers, which acted more like reserve units. And they made the bulk of the army. But inside the nucleus of this reserve army was a highly skilled, full-time, professional warrior class who had spent their entire life training to fight and kill on the battlefield. And they were remarkably similar to the Spartan warriors. And they were called the Sacred Band. Now the Sacred Band was made up of 150 gay couples who were paired together. Now the logic of this setup was simple. If you take two people who really love each other and stick them in a battlefield, they will literally do 
anything to make sure that the person they loved the most survived. And this desperation to make sure that their partner lives meant that they were going to be way more ruthless on the battlefield. And this made the sacred band a killing machine that could rival the Spartans. So in ancient times, the gayest army was actually the strongest army. When the Theban Democrats got word that the Spartans were once again marching into Boeotia, they decided that it was time to unleash their new secret weapon and face them off against the Spartans. So the Thebans, preparing for battle, marched out to meet the Spartan army. And in 371 BCE, the Theban army met the Spartans at the Battle of Leuctra. Once again, the Spartans stack their best warriors on the right flank, just like every Greek army had done in the past. And this is because the right was always the honorable place to be, and it was reserved for the highest-ranking soldiers. And the reason for this is because of the formation of the Hoplite army, where the right flank is protected by the man on the left, which means the far left is usually vulnerable. So they put their the highest ranking officers in the safest spot because you want them to survive to live to fight the next battle. However, the Thebans knew they were going to do this because they always do this. It's very predictable. However, this time the Thebes did something different. They positioned the sacred band, their strongest military force, on the left flank, right in front of the Spartan elite soldiers. Not only did they put them right in front of the Spartans, elite soldiers, but they made sure that their ranks were over 50 men deep. Now this is this is like the the deepest phalanx you'd ever seen. There's no way you could penetrate this with like even the most vicious Spartan hoplite warriors. It's just it'd be like going up against a brick wall. And these are not only 50 men deep, but it's also like the most skilled trained army the Greek world had ever seen. So this Greek phaser was set to kill. When they meet in battle, it's going to be a slaughter. And the Thebans massacred the Spartans, killing more than half of them right there, wounding hundreds more, and they even killed the Spartan king on the battlefield. This was a major victory for the Theban general Epimenondas. In one battle, they destroyed a good portion of the entire Spartan elite warriors. There had been so many casualties from the Peloponnesian War and the Corinthian War, and now this Theban War, that their manpower was extremely limited. Not to mention, they practiced a ritual in which any child born with the slightest defect would be thrown off a cliff and discarded. So this meant that the amount of recruits for the Spartans were already very low. And now Epimenondas was determined to completely wipe the Spartans off the face of the earth. In 370 BCE, Epimenondas marched his army across the Isthmus and into the Peloponnese. They raided the countryside and eventually, in 370 BCE, Epimenondas marched his army across the Isthmus and into the Peloponnese. They raided the countryside and eventually make it to the unwalled city of Sparta. The Spartan army was too weak to engage the army, so they fell back into their city to defend her. All the while, the Thebans ravaged the countryside, freeing helots and killing Spartan loyalists. At times, the Spartan women came out and attacked the Thebans. Instead of engaging in a bloody war of attrition, the Thebans set sail and bypassed Sparta entirely. They landed in ancient Mycenae, where they went to free the helots. They landed in ancient Mycenae, where they went to free the helots. Now, 
just going to give you a quick little note where Messenia is. It's uh, it's on the south uh, of the Peloponnese, on the western side, sort of like due west of where Sparta is, not that far away. In 369 BCE, Epimenides rebuilt the ancient city of Messenia, which was destroyed by Sparta over 200 years ago. A call was put out through all of Greece for the exiled Messenians to return to their homeland and rebuild their once great city-state. Epimenides built the city on top of a hill and built some of the greatest walls Greece had ever seen, making it the most fortified city in the Peloponnese. Afterwards, the Thebans freed all the Helots and returned them to their new capital. Without engaging in a direct war with Sparta, they managed to create a powerful enemy that lived right next door, dealing with the Spartan problem without having to do the dirty work for themselves. In 367 BCE, Theban troops marched into the Peloponnese again, this time to force a treaty with Achaia. They wanted to strip more allies away from Sparta, so they exiled the oligarchs of Archaea and established a new democracy. This didn't last because as soon as the Thebans left, the oligarchs returned with the Spartans and killed the democratic government. Not only did the new democracy fail, but the oligarchs were now actively working against Thebes and Epimenondas. In 365 BCE, Epimenondas successfully dismantled the Peloponnesian League, and with the new kingdom, Messenia was fiercely loyal to the Thebans. Sparta was starving with no food, and their power was dwindling. While the Spartans were in their death throes, they lashed out and struck wherever they could, causing riots and resisting the Thebans in any way they could. Small pitched battles all are fought across the Peloponnese and throughout the Aegean, as the Thebans start freeing Greeks from Sparta and absorbing them into their new empire. They even begin challenging the Athenian Empire in the Aegean Sea, taking Byzantium and several other Greek polis. They even take all of Thessaly and approach the borders of Macedonia. In 362 BCE, Epimenondas marched another army into the Peloponnese, this time with their allies, and they went to put down a rebellion in Mantinea. Mantinea, however, called upon Sparta and Athens and Achaea and all of Arcadia. This was a showdown with every Greek city-state present. This wasn't the kind of battle where one side scares off the other. Everything was on the line. Epimenondas decided to march off at night and go straight for Sparta, that was completely undefended with the intention to sack it to the ground. However, when they finally get to Sparta, they see that the city is, is manned. Apparently, the Spartans found out about Epimenondas' plan, and they double-timed it back to the city. To make it even worse, Sparta's allies showed up just as the Thebans realized the city was manned by Spartans. So with this sneak attack foiled... There was no point in attacking now. So Epimenondas took his army and marched right back to Mantinea, now that this was undefended. However, the Athenian army was still in Mantinea, and they attacked, and they attacked Epimenondas. So, so they went down to attack the Spartans at one city, and then they realized, hey, the, the Spartan city is undefended, let's go fight them. So they marched their army over there. It was just a bunch of armies running back and forth trying to protect their city-states. Epimenondas knew that if he left the Peloponnese now, he would never have Theban hegemony, which basically meant a Theban empire. So he decided he'd stand and fight. And what came next was the largest hoplite battle in Greek history. And this is known as the Battle of Mantinea. With over 30,000 hoplites and 3,000 cavalry, Epimenondas faced off against 20,000 Spartans, Athenians, and the rest of their allies. 
Now the two armies faced off against each other, but no one wanted to start the fight. The two armies were sizing each other up when Epaminondas ordered his men to form into columns and march parallel to the army line. When the Thebans dropped their gear and started casually setting up, it looked to the others, the Spartans and Athenians, like the Thebes were setting up camp for the night. They began to relax and, and they and they also kind of relaxed their military formation. However, the Thebans were very calmly moving their troops into position for attack. They knew what they were doing. Just calmly put everything down and make it look like you're going to sleep for the night, but what you're really doing is forming into battle lines in such a calm way that no one even noticed what they were doing. And then Epaminondas secretly moved his sacred band into the position in the front of the Spartan elites in a move to re- recreate the battle of Leuctra. So once they were all in position, when the order was given to charge, it took the Spartans and Athenians completely by surprise. Which also, it's important to note that at this point, the Spartans and Athenians are on the same side. So just goes to show quickly everyone is changing teams. Now they scrambled to get into formation. And according to Xenophon, the sacred band pierced through the Spartan elite like a trireme through a ship. The Thebans smashed right through the Spartans and then came around the rear of the enemy line and then crashed into the Mantinean army. The Thebans and the Sacred Band had completely destroyed Sparta and her allies, and the rest fled the battlefield. Unfortunately, though, Epaminondas was mortally wounded by a Spartan and died shortly after the battle. And with him now dead, the next line of command fell onto another man who had died in the attack, which, you know, bad news. In fact, the third in command also perished in this attack, and the leadership of the Theban army just ceased to exist. The Spartans and the Athenians were running defenseless now, and it was the perfect opportunity for the Thebans to pursue them and crush them forever. However, they were leaderless. So, they just went home. Terrible idea. There was no leadership at all. All of the power was held by Epaminondas, and he was a brilliant leader. But without him, there was no movement. Without a successor to the Theban ambitions for hegemony, without a successor, the Theban ambitions for hegemony completely faded away. So they had it. They won this battle. They completely annihilated their enemies. And because they lost three people, who just happened to be the first in command, the second in command, and the third in command, their entire military force faded away. Now, this is a very classic way of Greek Greek warfare, where you put your general right on the front lines. And they all thought it was about bravery. But, I mean, look what happens. You lose your generals and everything falls apart. So, it's a strength and a weakness. By 361 BCE, the Greek polis such as Sparta, Athens, Corinth, and Thebes were completely exhausted from nearly a century of fighting. Whenever one Greek polis became strong enough to rule over the others, the Greek polis would team up to make sure their neighbor didn't get too strong. It happened many times, and each polis had their turn at it, but now they were withered and weak and poor. This mutual destruction left them vulnerable to outsiders, and a Greek tribe to the north is about to take advantage of them. Who are the Macedonians? They are Greek and they come from the north. The largest mountain in Greece, Mount Olympus, acts as the border between Thessaly and Macedon in the north. The mountain is a natural barrier that isolated the Macedonians from the other Greeks. 
Something to take note of the Macedonians was that they did not live in a Greek-Polish system. They were considered to be barbarians by many of the cultured Greeks in the south. Yet the Macedonians were Greek, spoke Greek, and worshipped the Greek gods. They were Greek, but a different type of Greek. Instead of living in Polish system, the Macedonians were a kingdom. They had a king, and many different Macedonian tribes underneath the king ruled by noblemen. The Macedonian kings come from the Argead dynasty, which dates back to... 700 BC. Even though there are legends of Argead kings, we don't have a reliable record until 547 BCE when Amynthus I was king of Macedon. It was in 514 BCE during the reign of Amynthus I that they give the tribute of earth and water to the Persians. During the Persian invasions, Macedon was a vassal state to the king of kings. Alexander I ruled from Macedon from 498 BC to 454 BC. The fact that the kings of Macedon retained such autonomy during their occupation by Persia shows just how tolerant of an empire the Persians were. The Macedonians didn't sell their cousins to the south. They warned them about the Persian plans to burn Athens to the ground, and they even fed them supplies during the Greco-Persian wars. They even fought in several battles against the Persians, killing thousands of them. When the wars were over and the Athenian Empire started to dominate the Aegean Sea, it prevented Macedon from expanding or even controlling their own travel and trade. Even though they had an alliance on paper, the Macedonians were always working with the Spartans against the Athenians. So when when the Athenians were utterly defeated in Sicily in in 413 BCE, uh, the king Archelaus, who ruled from 413 to 399 BCE, came to the rescue with enough lumber to rebuild their fleet, thus gaining the favor of the Athenian Empire. By selling their lumber to the Athenians, he brought wealth to the Macedonians, and he was able to build up their infrastructure and temple monuments. When King Archelaus was hunting, he was assassinated, and this led to a decade of instability. Several kings came and went before Amnitus III came to power in 393 BCE. It is during this reign that a tribe of Dardanians invaded Macedon. After decades of fighting between the Macedonians and the Dardanians, Macedon agreed to pay tribute to the Dardanians to keep them from harassing them. When Amnitus III died in 370 BCE, his son Alexander II took the throne of Macedon. And as soon as he took the throne, the Dardanians attacked again. With the help of the Athenians, they defeated the Dardanians and preserved Macedonian sovereignty. Unfortunately for Alexander, he was also assassinated, this time only two years into his reign in 368 BCE. Now, Paradicus III third inherited the throne from his older brother and he fought off a usurper almost immediately because he was too young Ptolemy ruled as his regent until Paradicus came of age. Ptolemy tried to seize control for himself and had Paradicus exiled to Thebes, but it is in Thebes that Paradicus learned how to be a hardened soldier and leader. And he returned to Macedon when he became of age and immediately called for the execution of Ptolemy. In 359 BCE, Paradicus, king of Macedon, led an army up north to fight the Dardanians. But unfortunately for him, the Dardanians annihilated the Macedonian army and laid waste to the countryside. Over 4,000 Macedonians were slaughtered on the battlefield, and the Dardanians could have pressed further and wiped out the Macedonians, but they didn't. In all of the fighting, Paradicus III was killed in battle. With Paradicus now dead and his son only a baby, his younger brother Philip became the regent over his infant son Amnitus IV. So there's 
definitely a reoccurring theme here, and that is if you're going to go to war with your enemy and you almost completely defeat him and you choose not to wipe him out at the end, you're really just asking for trouble because not only do they not forget, but they have time to rebuild and plot revenge and they always end up coming back for you. And Macedon is going to come back for everyone. In 359 BCE, Philip II became king of Macedon. He did not care that his older brother's baby was the rightful heir. Macedon was under threat of annihilation. Philip II took charge of a dangerous situation and handled himself well. There was no army left to defend himself, so Philip II agreed to marry the Dardanian king's granddaughter to form an alliance. This bought Philip II enough time to rebuild his army. The first thing Philip II did was to conquer the gold mines in Amphipolis, a small city to their north. This new wealth allowed him to create a full-time professional army. It was the only way he was going to compete with the southern Greeks. Philip also made sure to pay his soldiers well. With soldiers loyal to him only, he reformed the military ranks. The first thing he did was get rid of the large shield and adopt a small shield that was hung from the neck. The infantry soldiers were given spears 20 feet long, demanding the soldiers hold on to them with both hands. With these crazy long spears, the Macedonians could slaughter the Greek hoplites without ever getting within range. These large spears weren't the only advantage the Macedonian army had over the rest of the Greeks. They also had a superior cavalry. Because Macedonia is open plains, the rich nobles were very skilled horsemen and trained daily. Combining this superior cavalry with the long spears in a Macedonian phalanx gave the Macedonians an advantage over the entire world. Just like the Peltest, the Macedonian phalanx was a technological advancement that gave the Macedonians an advantage over the other Greek police. It could even withstand a full frontal cavalry charge. And it isn't just larger spears that made the Macedonians a better fighting force. It was now they protected their flanks with regular hoplites and deployed their cavalry from the honorable right flank. Most often, the cavalry was unleashed as a lethal blow at the end of a battle. This strategy could also be described as an anvil and hammer. The anvil is the phalanx that pins the army down, and then the cavalry swing in from the rear and act as a hammer, crushing their enemy in a fatal pinch. By 358 BCE, Philip's new army was ready to rid the Macedonians of the Dardanians once and for all. When Philip faced off against the Dardanians, he stacked his best troops on the right and led them personally in a charge. The Macedonians crushed the Dardanians, killing over 5,000 of them, while only suffering a few hundred losses themselves. Philip finally pushed the Dardanians out of Macedon for the first time in over 50 years. But he wasn't going to stop there. Philip was determined to keep spreading. In 356 BC, Philip's wife Olympia gave birth to their son, Alexander the Great. This was the same year that Philip's racehorse won at the Olympic Games, and it is also the year he defeated the last Athenian army in Lower Macedon. Philip's new army was winning battle after battle in the north, securing his empire, and also taking control of many gold mines, increasing the wealth of the Macedonian Empire. In 352 BC, Philip took Thessaly, and later in 343 BC, he took control of Thrace and Molossia. There are two traditional and opposing views on Philip. Demosthenes from Athens wrote that he was a restless foe, who was a greater enemy to the Athenians and the Thebans and the rest of the Greek polis than the Persian Empire ever could be. However, Isocrates believed that Philip was exactly the leader the Greeks needed to unite them all under one house. 
The Greeks need to stop fighting each other and start working together. Otherwise, the Persians will destroy them. Isocrates was a Pan-Hellenist who believed in the unification of all Greeks. In 338 BCE, Athens and Thebes formed an alliance to counter the Macedonian power. They could see just how quickly Philip was expanding his territory in the north, and they did not like it. It was common knowledge by now that the Macedonian army was a force to be feared. Now, the Theban coalition and the Macedonian army finally came to battle in 338 BCE outside of the Chironea Acropolis. They met for battle in a large, dried-up riverbed. The Athenians were made up of the Athenian hoplites on the left, and the stronger Theban army and the sacred band took the honorable position on the right flank. By this time, the sacred band were the most elite warriors in the Theban League. The Spartans had been wiped out now for decades. On the other side of the battle, Philip II took control of the honorable right flank, facing off against the lousy Athenian hoplites, while his son, Alexander III, who was only 18 years old at this time, commanded the cavalry on the left flank. Instead of letting the center get slaughtered by the sacred band, Philip II ordered his troops to hold back and not engage the sacred band. When Philip engaged the Athenians in hoplite warfare, they held their ground for a little bit, before he gave the order to fall back. Because the Athenians were not really a disciplined army, they began to chase the retreating Macedonians, thinking, hey, they had them on the run, let's go pursue them. And this pulled them away from their defensive line. The Sacred Band, however, was a disciplined army, and they did not break rank. This is an example of the feigned retreat, where you pretend to run away because you're losing in order to trick your enemy into pursuing you. Now, with the Athenians on the left flank now breaking rank and pursuing the retreating Macedonian phalanx, a clear line of sight opened between the Athenian hoplites and Alexander's cavalry. Galloping across the center of the battlefield from one far side of the army, the cavalry came charging in and rammed right into the exposed flank of the Athenian hoplites. The Theban soldiers watched in horror as their Athenian comrades were all slaughtered on the battlefield. With the Athenians completely wiped off the board and the Thebans in disarray, the Macedonian center infantry began to charge the line. And this, of course, forced the Thebans to form up into their phalanx and meet their enemy in formation. However, Alexander was now behind them with his cavalry and he began the attack from the other side. The Thebans were pinned and could not get away. And of course, the entire sacred band was on this battlefield. Now the sacred band held together and fought bravely against the Macedonians, but there was no way they could win. They literally fought to the very last man. Every single member of the sacred band was killed in this battle. And Philip II was so impressed with their bravery that he built a statue on the battlefield honoring their bravery. With this battle, Philip II seized control of all of mainland Greece. In 337 BC, Philip, now ruler of all of Greece, created the Hellenic League, sometimes referred to as the League of Corinth. This league was comprised of every single Greek polis on mainland Greece, except for Sparta. This was all starting to move towards the vision of Isocrates, who wanted to see all of Greece unite under one banner and to crusade across the Aegean, and to wipe out the Persian threat once and for all. And for the first time in a long time, a war with Persia became a popular idea.
336 BCE, Philip was murdered by a nobleman. This murder is very controversial, but it is hypothesized that Philip's wife and Alexander's mother, Olympia, murdered Philip. This is because Olympia was not a native Macedonian, and therefore Alexander wasn't a full-blooded Macedonian. And because they practiced polygamy in Macedonia, Philip had taken a younger wife who was Macedonian, and she gave birth to a baby boy in 336 BC. This little boy threatened Alexander's claim to the throne. It is this reason that gives Olympia motive to murder Philip. At the age of 20, Alexander becomes the next king of Macedonia. So with Philip II dead, and Alexander now the rightful ruler of Macedonia, and therefore all of mainland Greece, we're about to enter one of the biggest chapters of ancient Greek history. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome. Yeah.